0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit christpres.org.
1: Our scripture today is from Philippians 2:12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of god without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in every so that in the day of christ i may be proud that i did not run in vain or labor in vain even if i am to be poured out as a drink offering up the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: I was just talking to a group of people gosh, um, just the other day. I think I was meeting with somebody and they were saying, how did you and your wife meet? And I said, we met on a blind date. And, um, one of the stories that I didn't get to share was how when we were newly dating, one of the things I uh, pranked her with is, uh, and that is one of the things when we were at Baylor University back in the, back in the day, uh, Waco, Texas, not a whole lot to do in Waco, Texas, you can imagine. Uh, so you do a lot of things like pulling pranks. And I remember uh, Megan and I had just been dating, uh, gosh, for a handful of months, I think it was, and... Um, One of my dearest friends, closest friends from even growing up uh, and her decided to pull this prank on me. I had to be out of town. I couldn't go to this certain function with her. uh, And uh, so they decided to get these funny pictures and uh, and, and make fun and all this stuff anyway. Well, I have a problem with if somebody pranks me, I don't just do it in kind. I kind of like ratchet it up probably a lot more than necessary. And uh, so, at the time, I was in a fraternity, and um, I got the use of my pledges. And um, we decided we were going to uh, switch her room and my uh, best friend at the time's rooms, and they lived in different apartments. So, if you can imagine, thankfully, they lived in the same complex. But I basically told our—I stood up on this chair to our pledges to get them all riled up and. I gave this just rousing speech, just and they were like, ho oh, oh, ho oh, oh. ho ho! And they just were so ready to go, and they, we get in the parking lot, they form this line from basically one door to the other, and they are carrying everything now we 're talking not just like closet we 're talking mattresses, toothbrushes. the entire room was going across one way and then the other, and people were sitting there staring going, What is going and um, and so, I, I remember when uh, my friend, who actually went to um, a Mavericks game in Dallas, which was just north of Waco, uh, came back to find his room completely not his, and Megan going into hers, and he was so angry, he wanted to put my car on cinder blocks, so I had to like take my license plate off but it was unbelievable. It was one of the great, and, and Megan said to me at one point, she said, uh, I really, that really was one of the things that sold me. Maybe I should, of course I did other things that probably did to the contrary, but that she really enjoyed and appreciated about me was that I did that. Of course, my, my you know, close friend at the time was mad at me for pulling a prank because they had to switch for basically a whole week. They kept like trying to take stuff back and forth to each other's apartments. And yet he was mad at me because he didn't do well on an exam. But he went to the Mavericks game. That was his fault. Um, it was so confusing when they went into their rooms and saw that. And I think one of the interesting things that we're talking about this morning, the thing number one thing I think I see in um, when I talk to people and I see in myself when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. Is the confusion and switching of what it means to be a Christian and live out the Christian life? I will say to you there's no more ink spilled on that thing then what it means, the Bible calls it justification and sanctification. Justification is that fact that you are declared righteous in Jesus. His blood is yours. But sanctification is that process, that progress of you being made more like Him. And the thing we, I see more than anything else that I talk about, more than anything else, and actually the Bible spends more time on anything else, is how we switch those things falsely and how it confuses us. I mean, isn't that the thing? Aren't we always asking and struggling with, what does it look like for me to grow? Maybe I switch to a new way of reading the Bible. Maybe I need to pray at this time of the day, or I don't pray at all, or gosh, what do I do about my, my relationship with God? Look, it is such a confusing, difficult thing. Isn't that the hardest part about being a Christian is being a Christian is living it, and isn't that the thing that so many, and it, maybe you're here this morning, that many people in this room are maybe coming back to Christianity or, or maybe you're kind of asking about it. You're saying, okay, I get that Jesus paid for our sins, but what is this Christian thing? Like, how do you live this? Is it just doing a lot of Christian stuff? Like, is that what it means to grow? Is that the measure? I mean, isn't that what we're always asking? We confuse those things. And so we sit, when people ask, What's it like to be a Christian? And we talk about, well, you read your Bible, you go to church, and you have these relationships. Our relationship with God equals what we do for him instead of being with him. And so there's this confusion. Paul spends in this chapter, in this letter, in this part, a very sizable portion speaking to the way that we are in Jesus and grow in Jesus. Jesus. And how important that is. See, here's the thing that we need to remember. Because a lot of us may fall on one side or the other. And I heard this long ago, and I love this phrase. Christianity is a come-as-you-are party. It is a come-as-you-are. There is no no merit you can bring to earn it. But it is not a stay-as-you-are party. We have to see change in our life. We have to see this working out, this change in us. You heard that word in there. And the two things that Paul says in this letter, in this little section that we're gonna look at, is how do we work out our salvation and how is it working in us? Working out and working in, those two things. And that kind of hinges in this letter. And the working out is interesting because it it begins with this, who's actually doing the work, right? That's kind of always the question. Am I doing it now that I'm saved? Do I work out? Notice he begins this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so not... Uh, now, not only is my presence much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when we hit that point, we kind of go, ooh, what's that mean? Well, think about this. Paul, not just here, but just even before this, we just look at this, is saying a couple times, I'm not here with you. He's actually writing this letter to them from prison. And he's saying, I'm not with you there. I, I know, In my absence, work out your salvation. He's kind of throwing out a question that we need to ask is, Do we really own our own faith? Paul's saying, Is your faith in Jesus, is the way that you live in Him contingent on me being with you, or is it yours? And I think that's an interesting question to begin with. Because is your faith yours, or is it yours when you're here on Sunday, or when you hang out with me, or you're in your Bible? Is it your faith? Is it your relationship to Christ? Or is it contingent on other things? Contingent on what you can do? See, the New Testament talks about sanctification, this process, this progress of you and I becoming more like Jesus, a lot more than just the forgiveness of Jesus. It's actually, there's obedience. It's because we're accepted, we're called to obey. We're actually called to obey him. And I know for many of us in that room, that's really hard because grace sounds so good. But if grace is really what it is, shouldn't it actually move us? Shouldn't it drive us? And I think the confusion begins this way. I think in one way, it begins with anxiety. When you read this, you say, yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm working it out with fear and trembling. Maybe for some of you, when you read fear and trembling, it's anxiety that you're not working enough. Uh, Maybe many of you think of your relationship with God as like, like you're always behind. Either you're motivated by guilt to do things in relationship to Him, or you're always feeling guilt for what you're not doing in relationship to Him. I remember knowing somebody that was even a part of a church at one point, and all members of this particular church, well, which I will not name, had a notebook that they had to go through. And in the notebook, it began the very first checklist part was, was start with a quiet time. And if you flipped in the notebook to the back, it said start your own church. You will not get one of those notebooks. To start with a quiet time, which, by the way, do we understand what that means, to all the way to you're supposed and I remember talking to this particular woman and her just being in tears, because she could not do it. She was like, "How, how do I do this? I don't see these gifts in me. I don't see this ability. What, what is this? Is that the Christian life? Is that what you're expected to do in a church? Have a quiet time and the success you know, where you get to is start your own church. Or is there something more? Is that where, no. See, these verses are saying work out because it's something you have. Look, we typically think work out your salvation, fear, and trembling. The language here is not work it out because you need to attain it. It's work it out because you already have it. It's actually you can work out in freedom because it is yours. It's not like what we talk about in our diet culture and workout culture of we're trying to get somewhere. Imagine, what if you were already healthy? And instead of trying to have the diet and have the workout to get to that place, you are already there. And not only that, these verses are even saying, you don't even have to maintain the health so much. And the way you look. What if you always saw yourself as healthy. And understood and felt good. See that's the working out. You get to do it in delight. Wouldn't you want to work out more? (laughs) Wouldn't you want to actually enjoy food more? Instead of like what am I eating? It it, it brings a delight. It pushes that back. See the the Old Testament talks about this. This is where Paul is drawing from, from here. The Old Testament of fear and trembling. That that this is like an Old Testament understanding, not of you don't have it, but of awe that you do. It's the fact that you are in relationship. It's fear, fear in the Old Testament and new, is talking about not just you're afraid of something, but that you're so awe-inspired by it that you want to be a part of it. It's that understanding of being close, near to the one who's taking care of you. Another part of this I think is interesting, working out, would be interesting is if you stop it, work out your own salvation, is kind of the arrogance. And this is a lot of what we see actually in, in the New Testament with the Pharisees, is working out your salvation. Work it out. I got this. That's kind of what it means, right? It's that merit base. It's the fact that I got this. I can take care of it. I got my quiet time down. Many of us in this room may be in that place. It's, it's that whole point of, gosh, I'm saved. I, I can do this. I can take care of it. I can grip it myself. It's all right. And this is what Jesus talks about a lot. Is is he says this passage is drawn from the Old Testament. He says, "I desire mercy over sacrifice." It's actually a really interesting verse that he draws out. And what he means by that, over and over when he talks to the Pharisees, is because in their arrogance of keeping all the laws, they have no relationship. They have no connection. There's no heart. In fact, they can do the sacrifices. They may know all of the ways to keep and do righteous things, like good things, right? And yet there's no heart at all. Isn't this what so much of Christianity is just completely criticized for? Is the fact that, yes, we, we may go to church, we may have everything in place to be holy, but are we holy? Is there an external holiness? only or is there something that penetrates our heart so much that we're connected you know david brooks wrote an article in the new york times called <clears throat> the structure of gratitude and it's interesting what he talks about with with the nature of gratitude in just general life economy what it does Listen what he says we live in a capitalist meritocracy this meritocracy encourages people to be self-sufficient, masters of their own fate. But people with dispositional gratitude are hyper-aware of their continual dependence on others. They treasure the way they have been fashioned by parents, friends, and ancestors, who are in some ways their superiors. They're glad that the ideal of individual autonomy is an illu—they're—they're they're glad the ideal of individual autonomy is an illusion, because if it were they're relying on themselves, they'd be much worse off. The basic logic of the capitalist meritocracy is that you get what you pay for, that you earn what you deserve. But people with dispositional gratitude are continually struck by the fact that they are given far more than they pay for and are much richer than they deserve. Such an interesting way of looking at that. But what if that was the way that we looked at it? That instead of, hey, we earn it, and isn't that really our way? It's not, it's not necessarily a, a commentary so much on capitalism, but how capitalism has penetrated our own understanding of individualism and what we can do in meritocracy. This is what's, what we're getting at here, is that fear and trembling is mining in us, saying, you, it's not all about you. Is there a dispositional gratitude? Is there a deep understanding of thankfulness of what God has done that drives us out to live differently? Instead of saying, you owe me, God. If you're the kind of person that finds yourself arguing and complaining with God a lot, or find yourself looking at God and others thinking that they owe you, you might be living in an arrogant stance of growth in Jesus. Notice that he, at the, right after this, verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Do you realize that he is hearkening, complaining and disputing? What is complaining and disputing? Why would he say that? Of all places to go right after, he says, work out your salvation, fear and trembling for his God as it works within you, for both to will, to work for his good pleasure. Do nothing, right? Do all things without grumbling, or disputing, why complaining? Because what do we do when we complain? We are saying that we could have it better. We're saying in arrogance, it could be arrogance that we could have it better, or in anxiety that I don't have all that I need. Isn't it interesting? This is the whole life of The Old Testament. If you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all those books at the very beginning of the Bible, those books are talking about the people of God and their movement. God actually opens up, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, He actually opens up a sea and brings His people out of slavery. He actually delivers them out. They see walls of water. They see the way that he put plagues and and took care of their enemies. And yet the first thing that happens when they get into the wilderness, the God that saved them, they begin to complain and groan at him and those around them. Is complaining and disputing an aspect, a characteristic of what you see in your life? Because you might be asking yourself, am I complaining because I don't think what God is doing is enough? Or what's good in my life is enough? Or I could do it better? Where does the doing Christian things take over the being of who you are? Because if you're doing the Christian life just to be somebody and you fail, it's gonna wreck your whole understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus. Anytime you put your identity on something that you do, think about at work, think about at parenting, think about when you fail, think about your real marriage, think about your friendships. When you fail at doing those things with those around you, does it completely wipe you out? Because you've put your doing before your being. Your doing equals who you are. But imagine if you put your being, imagine if the fact is who you are in him drove how you live. If instead of trying to get love, you went out as loved. Wouldn't that change the way you feel? See, complaining and disputing, this is what people always say about the church, why they hate Christians. And they say, why would I want to do that? I can argue with anybody. Why do I need to take on something that, that tries to typify my life when I can already have arguments? when it seems like the church just can't agree and people in it just complain and argue and they complain about all the culture and what's wrong with everything. But what if following and being in Christ painted a new picture? Do you see what he's trying to say? If you want to show the truth of who Jesus is in your life, do you know who you are in him? And obedience flushes that out. You have to show a different life for people to see if Jesus is real. It has to work out in fear and trembling. It has to work that way. Because here's what the danger is that I find the most, is that most of us move from arrogance to apathy. We move to an apathetic stance. And I think it's the most dangerous place because so many of us may even find ourselves right there Yes, you hear a bird in the room. I won't say you that. I might as well call it out. It's going to tweet the whole time. But it is interesting to me, though, when you get to a place where you essentially find yourself so tired of working. I know you're going to hear it the whole time. Let's get it out. Bird. But it is interesting, isn't it? So Many of you in this room may be in that place. And let's be honest, apathetic about the Christian life. Apathetic about the fact that, you know what? I keep trying this thing. I don't know if it matters whether I do spend time in my Bible or actually pray. I don't really know how to do it. Maybe every now and then you get a surge of wanting to do those things. But you feel apathetic. Let me read something to you from The Atlantic from someone who is not a Christian, about what I think typifies more of what we are like than maybe this person. It was from an article called Let It Be. And a guy who uh, was uh, actually considered himself an atheist at one point, listen to what he says. It came to me recently in a blinding vision that I am an apotheist well, blinding vision may be an overstatement. Wine-induced haze might be more strictly accurate. This was after a couple of glasses of Merlot when someone asked me about my religion. Atheist, I was about to say, but I stopped myself. I used to call myself an atheist, I said, and I still don't believe in God, but larger, the larger truth is that it has been years since I really cared one way or another. I'm, that was when it hit me, an apatheist. That got kind of a chuckle. But the point was serious. Atheism is defined, a disinclination to care all that much about one's own religion and even stronger disinclination to care about other people's may or may not be something new in the world, but it's a modern flowering, particularly uh, in pious America, it's worth getting excited about. Now, I read that to you because and some of you may in this room go, well, that's not me, but I think that's a pretty good assessment of what I would say many of us can treat our relationship with God like. That we look at our relationship with God as something that, how does it encounter everything around me, rather than how do I encounter God? Do people actually see or encounter us following someone different than ourselves? And what about those, and maybe you're in this room, that may not even know Jesus? What is it for us to even follow him if it's not something that we're willing to even show or share with anybody? Why follow it? Why? Wouldn't we be better off as apotheists? But here's the interesting thing about what Paul does in this, in this passage he doesn't end by saying work out, right? Because we would end up all being apatheists if that's the case. If you and I sit on what it means to work out our salvation, and this, the verse stopped there, we would be in trouble. But it goes on to say, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, there is a working out, but there really is a working in. and the language there, the work language is a word meaning in ergo, energy. And the second one is actually say, for God who is working in you, is actually an active verb. It's a work of God doing all of the work within you. It's the fact that it's not just by grace you're saved, but it's by grace you grow. It's the fact that God is within you, moving, changing, effectively, by his power to make you more like him. It's an unbelievable thing. And the Greek is huge because the Greek says it begins with God as the subject. You don't read that here, but it says, for it is God. It just says in the Greek, God is at work within you because it is God's work. Let me give you an understanding of this. I was at dinner last night and maybe there were some people behind us that had that Nashville soccer club gear on, you know, because uh, we're getting all soccer hyped up in our city. We've got hockey. We've got, what, what else can we bring? Let's just bring it all, right? Uh, and so they were geared up. So we were eating near um, the, uh, the sound stadium, and I guess there was a game. And so they were all hyped up and, you know, eating dinner after the game and stuff like that. And so what are, they're, they're wearing all the gear, right? So they're cheering for their team. Well, it made me think of when I was in uh, Rome years ago when the World Cup was going on. And Rome, uh, Italy had just won uh, a game in the World Cup. Just one game. It wasn't like the whole World Cup. They just won a game. And we happened to be traveling over there, and it was like a zoo. Go, Italia! I mean, like, mopeds, flags, people hugging each other, strangers, high fives to Americans. You know, they're like, we don't even care that you're here. You know, they, like, loved it. And it makes me think, how much of us, can just glory in a uniform of that, but how much of us are really a part of it? What, what did the Italians get? They get the fact that those people on the field—they didn't win. That none of those people that cheering on driving mopeds were on the field. None of them scored the goals. But what did they all receive? They identified with. They took every bit of the work that everything was happening on that field. That was all theirs. And they identified with it. So much so that the celebration went on and it drew in even people outside of it. The work that was done on their behalf, they took as theirs. That is exactly what it's saying. God's work is yours. So you can now live in the freedom of that. So much so that you don't have to glory in a uniform. The obedience can be a celebration. What if our obedience was such a celebration like soccer in Rome, that people in this city that were not even Christians said, I, wanna, I don't know what that is, but I'd, I'd love to be a part of that party. That's a different kind of party. That's a different kind of celebration. I was driving here this morning thinking, this very thing, and I, I, I don't even know why I'm saying this, because, it, but it struck me so hard. What is the point of us being here this morning when I see so many people walking around in the city they're not going to darken the door of a church. They could care less. Why would they want to come in here? Unless we invite them, unless we show them the celebration, the reality of what it means to be engaged with Jesus is not you're doing these Christian things. It's a celebration of his work and continual work on your behalf. That even in this very moment when some of you are looking at me like this, when is the bird gonna tweet again so I can be distracted? What is this? God is at work in you. That's what this is saying. He's saying it's doing it for you. John Hanna, one of my um, seminary professors, said this, he was an amazing man. And this should encourage you, if you're here and you're struggling with anxiety or apathy or arrogance, listen to what he says. Approaches to the spiritual life of these sorts do not take into account the struggle with sin as an ever-enduring process, and the result of such shallow ways of thinking results in discouragement for anyone hoping for a quick fix. When methods promise a great a great deal more than they actually deliver, the net result is not victory over sin, but a even greater sense of guilt and heightened awareness of failure if you are the type of person that struggles with anxiety in your obedience hear that phrase that it is not about adding a new method to expunge your guilt you have him working in you he's always working when you're not You can actually rest in him. Please, friends, if you're here and you're you're motivated by guilt to spend time with Jesus, he he wants you to do it. I don't think that you shouldn't do it. because. But go to him and, and, and let him tell you and remind you, the work you're doing is not what changes you ultimately. You're responding to the fact that he's working in you. Rest from your anxiety the fact that you have a God that's doing it. But be in obedience, work out in fear and trembling in awe of your relationship that the fact that he's working in you. Why in the world would God want to work in me? If he knew this, if he knew that, it's because he wants me to be like him. And it changes our arrogance because it says that, that he works, he cares a lot more about you than you do. If you think you care about being holy, you don't. You don't even know what it means, and nor do I. Because he cares a lot more about what you're going to look like than you do. He cares much more about your holiness. You're becoming more like him. That's the language that's in here. And the apathy that stirs you. To come and have your heart turned over. You know what it's like. Here's what it's like. You know if you, when you have an album of one of your bands that you love? You have the album. Maybe you listen to it all the time. You'll hear it in the car. You kind of go back to it over and over. Maybe it's your summer album that you listen to. Like it, it just directs your Spotify. It's all over that. But what happens when you go to the concert? Doesn't it flip that? When you go to the concert of that band you love and then you hear that song again, it creates a new drive in you. It creates a, this is a whole new thing. You, you, you see them in flesh. You have the experience covering that song and it makes that song jump out of the speakers even louder into your ears and into your heart because you have now a connection, almost like you know the artist yourself. There's something more to it. That is what we need to do. Instead of just having our Bibles and walking around with them, go to Jesus. He is what is popping out to us. Let it experience his world in you. Not just out here, but who he is. This is what Paul is saying. This is what it means for us to shine like stars. It's because we are in reflection of Jesus. We're a reflection of the one we're around. And it uses over and over this language in this passage, and I love, and others, of family language. You know, the Bible, every time it talks about what it means for us to grow in Jesus, it uses familial language. It uses language of saying you're becoming more like your father. You're becoming more like your heavenly father. He uses this language over and over and over. Isn't it the most unnerving thing to begin seeing things in yourself and your character that were your parents? Sorry. Glad my parents aren't here yet. But you see those things. They're, they're even making commercials about it now. I just saw a commercial the other day. I was like, Yes. When you see that thing, it's usually someone else that points it out. They're like, did you know you do this? And you're like, oh, gosh, that's my mom. Or, oh, my dad. You know, you see that or you hear a phrase. You know what the Bible is telling us? Is that all along there is this development in you and me. That oftentimes you don't even see. Because he is developing. He's working in you through his Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. And it's deep character. So rooted sometimes that you and I get anxious or feel good about ourselves or just totally give up. And yet he never does. Does that character flaw or thing in you, do you ever change? No, it, it's a part of you. And think about it this way. In this meal, when you come, you taste the family meal. This is a meal for you to come and say, you know what? I can't make, and this is what even historians over centuries have said, you don't make this juice or wine or bread or cracker change you. Like if you think about that, if you're, if you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're not a Christian or you're coming back in, you're like, why do we do this? It, you're taking like a snack. We do this because we celebrate a family meal where what we're doing is we're doing a work because we're celebrating the work of God in us. Because we're asking him to make what he says in the Bible, this bread and this blood, effective in us to make us more like Christ. And come to this table, if you will. If you come to this table stopping at, I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. If you stop there, please do not come to this table. Because this table is for those of us who are saying, yes, I'm going to work it out with fear and trembling because please, God, I know that you're at work in me, but please show me. <laughs> please show me. It's a humility. It's dependent on him. That is what this table's for. Let's stand together if we will.